Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. I'm Kathy Jacobs, former president of the Compliance Institute and an experienced compliance professional, and it is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. Welcome to our second episode on the individual accountability framework and the learnings from implementation so far. In relation to the current position in Ireland, what have you seen as you know the main themes or challenges encountered and what's keeping your clients awake at night, basically? I'll share a few of the concerns that my clients have had, but One thing that's really interesting to flag as well is that the feedback on the consultation paper actually provides a broad view of some of the challenges across the industry by respondents. And I would highly recommend that those who have not read it already should do so. Just as a small example of a consistent theme that has been raised is around certification. So as part of the consultation, respondents flagged that the certification of individuals carrying out CF roles may result in technological, logistical and administrative challenges, something I've just touched upon on the SMCR side and uh, with, with the UK regime. And so in response to that, the central bank actually amended the IAF guidance to limit the scope of the enhanced due diligence requirements to PCF roles, roles in CF1 and CF2s. And the, the central bank actually will require CF3s to 11s to self-certify to bring down the administrative, um, you know, the amount of heavy lifting required. Again, administrative burdens is a top, priority and also concern for for a lot of clients as I see it but there are also other areas so one of the concerns that I've seen specifically is concern around individual liability one key message that I shared with um, my own clients is that this can be combated or at least addressed in part by developing a thorough understanding of reasonable steps and then implementing an appropriate framework to demonstrate that those steps have been taken in the event of a regulatory breach. That is the requirement. It would be for the central bank to demonstrate. And so insofar as you have um, substantive evidence to prove that you are compliant with, with, that your actions um, and the decisions you make are aligned with, with the central bank's objectives and requirements, it brings you a long way forward in managing the regulatory risk exposure there. The other point is around the data management um, challenges. Many firms, as you know, are still using manual processes, which can often be time consuming and present, again, a significant burden on resources. We have seen firms use a mix of like spreadsheets, uh, documents, paper and and sort of computer files, and then other sorts of uh, very simple or in some cases, oversimplistic CRMs to manage their governance and oversight workflows. But we have seen from the publication of the rules and the guidance that firms will be required to keep a huge spread of records and to gather all sorts of information. And again, the administration of these workflows is complex and could potentially lead to resourcing constraints. So if firms do not utilise 
technology where, where they can, we will start to see some challenges, as has been present with the UK regime, where firms are complaining of delays in the completion of key actions, such as the certification of staff difficulties in the oversight of delegated tasks, particularly from a record keeping and monitoring standpoint, concerns around the fact that records are kept online, offline, all over the place. And therefore, there is never one space in which you can obtain a clear and full, I guess, comprehensive picture of the activities of any one individual. And then the risk of data inconsistencies and potential human error, as I stated, missing deadlines, all can have an impact where a firm is still reliant on manual processes, but is sub subject to quite detailed rules. Or, or, you know, for example, an, in, an, a firm that is in scope of SEER would, would probably want to consider its workflows from an automation perspective. The other area that we've seen is that embedding the conduct standards um, into BAU is presenting somewhat of a challenge. And of course, the IAF requires that it be embedded into business as usual and integrated into everyday processes. And for me, this is where tone from the top is very important. This is where clear communication and awareness across the business of individual and collective obligations is important. This is also where the policies and the procedures and the comprehensive training comes into play. The regime cannot be embedded if staff do not understand their obligations at the most basic level and how to achieve them in practice and aren't provided with the tools or equipment to be able to do a job to the standard expected by the regulator. The other thing as well is around understanding internal and external reporting obligations. Firms have struggled a little in that area, but I think the most recent iteration of the IAF's guidance clearly provides resources which firms can use to support its own reporting practices. Thanks, Azaria. Those are some really helpful insights for our listeners. And looking at the consultation papers, and you know, we, we've been through that that process of consultation. There's a lot in them. And if we could take one aspect, one theme say the duty of responsibility could you flesh out what that means and how do you implement that in practice absolutely it might be worth me raising at this point that our FSCOM IAF report goes into a great deal of um, detail around what the duty of responsibility is and how to implement this in practice um, however I'll speak on a few areas of practical implementation also talk a little bit about what the duty is under SEER so the purpose of the duty is to reinforce the PCF holders' responsibilities under SEER. And when I say responsibilities, I am referring to the inherent responsibilities, the prescribed responsibilities, and the other responsibilities that do not fit in either of the two buckets. And the duty does this by imposing an enforceable legal duty on each person in relation to their prescribed responsibilities. And the central bank um, has suggested that the duty of responsibility is discharged where the individual PCF holder takes reasonable steps to ensure that the firm complies with its obligations under the regime and in relation to aspects of the firm's affairs for which they are responsible under SEER. It is not possible in, in the central bank's view um, to contravene the duty if those individuals have taken such steps. 
And of course, what's important to note is that a contravention of the duty is a prescribed contravention for the purposes of the Central Bank Act, meaning that the Central Bank will have the power of enforcement action under the administrative sanctions procedures against any PCF holder who is found to contravene the duty. So again, I come back to that point that I raised previously and that we have seen in other regimes around reasonable steps. The Central Bank does not provide an explicit definition of what reasonable steps means, but it does in its guidance um, that I touched on earlier provide for a non-exhaustive list of considerations um, that should be taken into account in determining whether or not an individual has taken reasonable steps. It includes factors, factors such as the nature, scale and complexity of the business, the function of the person and the level of their knowledge and experience. And the central bank says that this is the level of knowledge and experience the person would reasonably be expected to have in relation to that function. The level of knowledge and experience of the person and the existence and application of appropriate and effective systems and controls. The effective oversight of delegation of responsibilities and effective safeguards against inappropriate delegation. So again, um, that point of outsourcing, which we'll come back to touch upon, is very important. Having in place adequate systems and controls as a means of demonstrating that you as an individual have taken reasonable steps is of paramount importance to the regulator. And um, when the central bank comes in to assess how individuals have taken reasonable steps. It will also look at the adequacy of existing resources and ensuring that the day-to-day -day activities of the function are adequately discharged. Even if, for example, the firm does have robust policies and procedures in place, if it isn't adequately resourced to allow the individual PCF to discharge its obligations, that in itself will be a contravention of the duty and will point actually to the firm's own failings as far as compliance with the IAF regime. So as I mentioned previously, the burden of proof in this regard actually lies with the central bank to evidence that a PCF holder did not um, take reasonable steps in discharging their duties. So often in, practical, in a practical sense, the central bank will seek to review documentary evidence of the day-to-day -day activities that an individual has undertaken in respect of its activities under the IAF. And therefore, I can't um, overemphasize the importance of having uh, not only an accurate and up-to-date paper trail, but one that presents a full picture of the firm's activities. I know that we've seen previously, particularly in the UK, where a lot of really good discussions take place offline. These discussions lead to key decision-making, which often go undocumented. And I think things, you know, behaviors um, like that and practices like that, that which I've described can lead to the central bank finding that actually there was a failing in compliance, not because steps weren't taken or processes weren't put in place or policies weren't followed, they were simply not documented. And so again, the paper trail, the audit trail will probably be the most important part in my view um, in demonstrating reasonable steps. Are there any specific challenges where a firm's business model relies, you know, to a greater extent on outsourcing? 
Yes, actually, what's interesting is that, you know, um, DORA, which is, is um, the European level legislation, is coming down the pipe and is due to, to come into force from 2025. And a lot of firms in their preparations for, for that around operational resilience um, have been looking at their governance and oversight arrangements in relation to outsourcing. And it's that area where we've seen the biggest amount of challenges in terms of firms' reliance on particularly those that significantly outsource um, their core functions. Before I go into the detail though, I just want to explain at this stage that why this is important is that firms in scope of SEER will be required to allocate a senior executive function with responsibility for outsourcing arrangements. And the oversight of the outsourced role holder will fall under the relevant PCF. So firms in scope of SEER will need to reflect this in the relevant statement of responsibilities and responsibilities maps. And the central bank has suggested that this approach will ensure that the overall responsibility and the related individual accountability is retained within the business. Meaning whilst you can outsource the operations, you cannot outsource your overall accountability or regulatory obligations. So where we have seen um, as part of our reviews of firms outsourcing governance arrangements, key challenges, I would start by sharing uh, at a very high level, from the top at the governance level, a lack of adequate consideration of outsourcing within boards and um, departmental, even firm-wide risk appetites. What I found is there is often no clear articulation of a firm's risk appetite and tolerances in relation to the outsourcing of critical functions. And this means that a firm cannot properly evidence that it has determined when its critical outsourcing arrangements exceeds the level of risk that it's willing to accept. This is abundantly clear to me through our review of governance and oversight of frameworks. And um, when we look at board minutes, when we look at reports to the board, we often find that outsourcing is only ever a feature where there is remedial action to be taken. We have also seen absence of processes for identifying critical outsourced services. So when we review outsourcing policies, they just simply restate the regulatory requirements, but they do not describe the procedures or provide guidance to staff on how to identify critical outsourcing and how these should be distinguished from non-critical outsourcing. This initial uh, mapping exercise has proven to be quite a challenge for firms, but I think it really speaks to a lack of understanding across the board of the regulatory requirements as well as the expectations by the regulator as far as outsourcing is concerned. The other challenge that we have seen relates to a firm's initial and ongoing um, due diligence of outsourced service providers. For example, some firms have no policy on what information should be requested from service providers, so they're not able to, 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 to gather meaningful management information, nor do they provide any guidance or criteria for assessing those service providers' business continuity plans. So, in essence, they're exposing the firm itself to an increased risk from an operational risk perspective, where they do not have the confidence or evidence to be able to demonstrate that they're confident that they're their service providers business continuity planning framework is robust. This pre presents a particular challenge and a risk where an individual either has a single supplier to which it outsources significant uh, material functions, as you often see this within group, uh, group entity arrangements, or even where a 
firm, whilst it's not outsourcing all of its its um, functions, it outsources a material or critical function without the adequate oversight in that area. Some other challenges we have seen, but these have been sort of uh, over across the past maybe five or six years now, is the, the absence of appropriate service level agreements. Um, we often find that firms have contractual arrangements in place with their outsourced service providers, but the actual service level agreements which govern the parties to and set up the obligations of each party to to the actual function often do not exist or are not adequately um, implemented. I mentioned the heavy reliance on outsourcing arrangements and the fact that firms do not give adequate focus to business continuity. Um, but one thing that the regulators in the UK um, and also in, in Ireland have flagged because the central bank has, as you know, issued its guidance on outsourcing, which was published back in December 2021. And what the regulators have said is that all arrangements need to be able to support the continued operation of a business during a disruptive event. Um, and that firms should make it a, a priority to ensure that not only are they taking proactive steps to protect um, their consumers, but also to minimize the risk of impact to the markets and the financial services industry within which the, the, the firm operates. And I think business continuity as part of this area is a big part of, of the regulator's focus. And, and so I say all that to, to, to really point to, which, which I would, or I suppose my advice would be um, that I want to highlight the importance of proper outsourcing systems and controls. And I, I think the central bank has reinforced its position that firms remain ultimately responsible for the provision of services by outsourced providers. And the central bank published its industry-wide guidance that I mentioned just a moment ago, which should be followed closely and utilized to implement best practice standards when firms, particularly those within the scope of SEER, are looking at how to develop and operationalize their own frameworks for, for compliance with this regime. And so when we talk about establishing proper systems controls, we're really looking at processes for identifying and monitoring critical outsourcing arrangements. In particular, outsourcing policies should do more than just recite the regulatory requirements, as I've previously mentioned. They should be tailored to the firm in question and structured in a way that the varying risks posed by the outsourcing of different functions are properly addressed and managed. I think that firms should engage in appropriate initial and ongoing due diligence, as well as ongoing audits of their outsourced service providers, delegate this task to a third party if the firm does not have the resources uh, from a knowledge and skills perspective to be able to deliver that. Ensure that appropriate risk identification and reporting and management is in place and that the board and senior management are involved in those processes from the outset. As an SEF responsible for outsourcing under the SEA regime, do not be surprised that the central bank may wish to speak directly to that individual in the event of a failing actual or potential. So really to tie this back to SEA then, I would say that effective oversight of outsourcing by senior management would include things such as identifying and understanding the firm's own reliance on critical outsourced service providers, setting proper risk tolerances that are appropriately cascaded and, and 
that individual should contribute to the setting of those risk tolerances alongside the risk management function and ensure that the firm's risk appetite is adhered to both within the business and by the critical outsourced service providers. So you arrive at a point where there is a proactive monitoring of the risk management of those areas rather than a reactive pursuit of remediation um, once an incident has occurred. Some great steers there for anyone who has responsibility for outsourcing. You know, again, we've seen, you know, the IAF is sort of amplifying the risks uh, to the individual if uh, in relation to, you know, whatever area in this case, outsourcing, some really good steers there. And, you know, we're coming to the end of our discussion. What advice do you have for anyone struggling at this point? If anybody's listening and are is, is worried by what they're hearing, what should they do? I would say I have maybe three or four tips that I, I would like to share that I think are really important. I think have worked well for firms that I've worked with during the course of implementing the IAF regime over the past. The work really for me started about um, six or seven months ago for, for Irish clients. The first is ensuring a very strong collaboration between HR, compliance, risk, legal, business units, the senior managers themselves. This is not a compliance only task, that is not a compliance only responsibility, and it would help to identify key actions and allocate responsibilities for delivery across the various areas uh, or uh, departments that I've mentioned. Be realistic about what is achievable by the deadline, given your current state. And where external resources are required, draw upon them. Put in place a robust implementation plan, which is informed by a gap analysis of your current state against the core requirements of the IAF. As I mentioned right at the outset of our discussion, this is not um, a reinvention of the wheel. This is about plugging gaps and looking at areas of weaknesses that need to be addressed and working together as a team to arrive at those objectives and those various requirements that need to be um, met. My second tip um, or bit of guidance would be to refer to the central bank's guidance that was issued in November 2023. I cannot overstate this enough. This sets out clear expectations by the central bank and it provides clarity to individual role holders on their responsibilities and their accountabilities. We talk about reasonable steps. There is a significant amount of work that has gone into the guidance issued by the central bank to describe to explain what that means in the day-to-day practice. Like I said, the regime is not intended to reinvent the wheel. So think of this as an enhancement rather than an overhaul of the existing regime. And particularly for those firms that are not in scope of SEER, think about proportionality. Seek external support if required. I mean, there are lots of GRC practices, whether that be law firms or regulatory consultancies such as FSCOM, that have um, and provide clients with bespoke advice and also provide IAF toolkits. So the IP containing documents such as training materials, policies and procedures, templates, logs, registers, and all sorts of other monitoring tools that can contribute to significantly lifting the burden on the implementation side. I think those cannot be um, sort of overlooked. It, they are worth an investment, particularly for those firms that are struggling at this stage. Thanks, Azaria. So for anybody who's, whose head is still in the sand, they need to get it out and they need to assess where they are, yes. where they can get to, collaborate across 
all areas. Um, yes. You know, take an incremental approach because they will have something there that they can work on. Refer to the central bank guidance, and you know the central bank has to be commended in that. You know, we have a lot of material now. We we know much more what's going on inside their head in terms of expectations yes. on things, um, <laughs> like uh, you know the the conduct standards and get help. Um, help is there. So, final question, Azaria, what do you think the future holds for? these uh, accountability regimes in general, in your view? Thanks, Cathy. I think the regimes will continue to grow, to evolve um, as the financial services industry itself changes, whether that be because of technological changes or the way in which products and services are delivered across the sector. I also think that regulators will continue to hold firms to a very high standard and will continue to seek to take action against individuals who fail um, in their duties. I think that the regulators would be keen to address areas that aren't working as expected or have resulted in unintended consequences whilst continuing to maintain and develop those areas that are working well. Take the UK, for example, in March this year, um, the HM Treasury, alongside the other regulators, launched a review into SMCR, and this was initially announced in 2023. They said that they intend to identify ways to improve um, SMCR to make it work better for both firms and regulators whilst preserving its, its underlying aims. And if you think about it, at the heart of all of these regimes that we've discussed, whether Hong Kong, the UK, Australia, and even Ireland, um, the desire by regulators to protect consumers and to protect the integrity of the markets remains at the forefront of all of these objectives. And I think overall the regimes point to a positive shift in attitudes and behaviours towards good conduct within the financial services industry. And I do hope that we will start to see an increase in trust by consumers. Brilliant, Azaria. Yes, I think that's the holy grail, isn't it? Trust and, you know, so that we can obviate the need for enforcement action, you know, so that yes. it's just a, a clean up um, at source. Well, Absolutely. thank you so much, Azaria. I've really enjoyed our discussion and there is just a wealth, a treasure trove of advice there for our listeners. So I'm really grateful to you for sharing your, your insights and your expertise. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. And I know listeners will, you know, will get a, a lot of benefit out of your thoughts so thank you for for talking to me today thank you very much for having me Cathy and thank you very much to the Compliance Institute it's been a fantastic discussion and I look forward to receiving any questions that might arise as a result of this discussion and I hope we as an industry continue to to share these ideas um, and work with each other And thanks to you for listening to the Compliance Files podcast brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope and I'm sure that you find this podcast interesting and useful. We would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. And until the next episode, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.